Welcome to International Tax Bites, designing the perfect international taxation system. This is a short series of episodes which focus on the design and functioning of the international tax system, each featuring a guest who has expertise in the international taxation arena. We hope you enjoy it. So Harriet, here we are for our second recording session in our uh, mammoth project that you came up with. Um, who are we talking I to I love today? the way you keep blaming me for this. Actually, I don't mind you blaming me for this because today we have an absolutely amazing guest. Uh, this is Carlos Proto, who is Director of International Tax Relations uh, for Argentina. And he is also uh, the representative of Argentina to the OECD and the UN Committee of Experts on International Cooperation in Tax Matters. So we're hugely excited to have Carlos with us and, and hugely grateful um, and Carlos is going to talk to us today about the current place and the place perhaps where they should be of developing nations in the international tax system. So right. uh, that sounds fascinating. All right, I'm you know I'm very you've done great getting Carlos to be honest. Um, I'm I'm very impressed. Though I think we should say that Carlos is not speaking for the Argentine government or for any other institution when he talks to us today. He's just talking generally about the topic um, and he's not, uh, there should be no diplomatic incidents as a result of anything he says <laughs> on, the, on our podcast. So, yes. Uh, so that's that's an important, important disclaimer early on. So, Carlos, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, obviously, you've agreed to come here today and talk to us about, about developing nations in the international tax world. And so... I really wanted to start by getting your views on sort of how the existing tax system impacts on developing nations. So, for example, um, obviously, we've got the double tax treaty network, which until comparatively recently has really comprised the whole of the international tax system. And I'm interested to understand how that impacts developing nations. Thank you, and hello before everything. Uh, yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. Uh, since the beginning, developing countries have been asked to follow the international tax agenda as set out by developed countries, uh, starting with the first inter international tax issue, which was the negotiation and conclusion of tax treaties. It was just on demand of developed countries. So export capital countries were always requesting developing countries to uh, start negotiating a framework that provides some tax certainty, that reduces excessive taxation uh, at source. So since then, uh, developing countries were trying to comfort uh, the needs of developed countries in order to set up a, a more uh, stable uh, environment for, for businesses. Since then, then we, we started with the exchange of information, again, try to tackle tax avoidance and evasion, particularly coming from developed countries. So there was a, a need and, and that was reciprocal. So both developed and developing countries benefit from exchange of information and that helps a lot to enforce uh, tax law. However, it was developing countries that were embarking this project in order to comply with, with that need uh, and the call from G20 countries to uh, start reducing 
opportunities for, for tax evasion and avoidance through uh, tax havens, particularly, uh, and the, the lack of uh, information. So that, that was back in 2009. Then the BEPS project, again, uh, developed countries or she 20 countries started identifying concerns on how base erosion and profit shifting uh, could be stopped somehow. Then 15 actions were developed, some recommendations and minimum standards came out of there. And developing countries that were later invited to follow the agenda. So we, back in 2016, the inclusive framework was created in order to allow developing countries to implement those standards that were previously designed mainly by G7 OECD countries. Sorry, to pause there for a moment. Um, it seems to be the case that developing countries have never been or, or historically have not been involved in the basic sort of structuring of these systems. And presumably that means that the nature of their tax systems and the particular um, challenges they might face aren't necessarily addressed by what we have now, like, as you say, double tax treaties, information exchange and um, BEPS. Just to give a little bit of history there for the listeners that, that aren't as au fait with what happened in the 1920s as we are, the initial system of double taxation treaties grew out of the uh, the German Empire, Austro-Hungary, uh, developing double taxation systems. And then in the, in the mid-1920s, the League of Nations Committee of Experts established residence and permanent establishment as the basic methods of taxing and, and produced some model conventions which have then turned into the OECD model. So essentially, we're dealing with a 100-year-old system that was designed by large colonial empires to deal with each other and with developing countries. They were the capital exporters. They were the ones with all the expertise. Um, The world was a very different place in 1927 (laughs) from what it is today. Um, So that's that's the, the form of the way these things are developed, like Harry just said, has always been developed nations coming up with plans and then developing nations coming along behind. Would you say that's fair, Carlos? Uh, That's fair. However, developing countries have been able to at least uh, raise their concerns, allow the outcome to be a little bit uh, tailored in order to address those concerns. But again, the the, the agenda was established by, by, by developed countries and they were just invited to, to implement those standards in a way that could also accommodate their needs, but mainly designed by, by others. That, that's the way I, I see it. Uh, and that's still happening with uh, nowadays uh, project on uh, addressing the tax challenges of, of uh, digitalization and globalization of the economy. So we are currently negotiating or have just finished negotiating uh, main changes to the international architecture. And even though developing countries were around the table at the time of negotiating, some particularities uh, have made the outcome to be again defined and designed by developed countries. And such developing countries were there to raise concerns and probably to have those concerns being somehow addressed, but no more than that. So there, there is a, still a lack of uh, initiative coming from developing countries at the time of establishing the agenda and prioritizing the international tax issues to be discussed. 
I, th I think one of the things that Graham and I s sort of see quite often is we, 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 we like a good blacklist or a grey list, don't we, Graham? Um, and what, what we tend to see is... I'm not in favour of being on them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what, what we tend to see is that when you have these sorts of lists, um, a lot of which are driven by information exchange, they tend to have one or two sort of recalcitrant... Uh, ultra low tax jurisdictions if i can put it that way and then a sort of a number of developing countries and i think we always wonder if that is simply because the developing countries maybe don't have the infrastructure to deal with things like information exchange and that 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 to me seems desperately unfair because it's not that there isn't a will it's that there's sort of uh, there just isn't at the moment the ability to put that together and that seems to, to me to be a, one of the problems that we all have where developing nations aren't able to, as you say, shape the architecture of what goes on in international tax. Yeah, yes, that, that, that's something interesting. Normally, those standards developed by OECD uh, or capital export countries uh, are there because they are in a more evolved situation. So they have already addressed more basic challenges the law enforcement is something that is not a problem for them uh, and they need to go beyond in order to improve tax systems uh, or, or to tackle specific uh, issues related to tax avoidance and evasion. However, from most develop, developing countries or least developed countries, their situation is different. They may or may not have a, a current tax system in the case they have some kind of taxation, they normally don't have the infrastructure to uh, guarantee a certain level of law compliance. So uh, tax enforcement is not necessarily uh, the most uh, developed uh, mechanism in those jurisdictions. So whatever it comes out, from central information requires a, a specific level or degree of uh, auditing in, in the country, which is normally requesting that information. So if you are not even there, you, you don't know what are what you are looking for. So you don't know what to request to the other jurisdiction. So it may turn the mechanism to be only one, uh, one direction, so unilateral is developed countries requesting some developing country in order to provide information they may have in order to assess the tax liability in the state of uh, the, 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 the state requesting the information. So the developing country may or may not have access to that information. So there is an unfair balance there. And uh, then again, uh, when establishing issues, it was always in order to reduce the gaps um, existing in the developed world. Uh, developing countries at that time, back in 2013, they were just trying to face some other issues. Uh, VAT is probably not properly collected in those countries and uh, indirect taxation is the main risk. Uh, main uh, sources of uh, collection for them. So they don't, they are not even there collecting what their law provides. So I, I see that asymmetry that is affecting the interaction uh, among different states around the same table of negotiation. So 
Again, uh, developing countries cannot identify concerns to be uh, globally discussed. Uh, they cannot probably uh, make an assessment of what would be beneficial for them. Uh, they cannot even liaise with their high-level authorities in order to have a direction of travel on different issues, uh, what to follow, what to stop, uh, what to propose as an alternative. So uh, that disconnection between uh, technical people and high-level politicians um, also deprives developing countries to have an equal footing at the time of discussing any international taxation. Some of these issues are also common amongst small but developed jurisdictions because it's about numbers in offices and and numbers of people who are technically expert. Like, so I live in a country of 27,000 people. There's no way HMRC have got more people working for them. The UK tax authority have got more people working for them than live in my entire country. (laughs) Um, There's no way that our tax office can deliver that sort of capacity that is expected of them by a large jurisdiction. And I know, obviously, we're not developing in the sense that we like our GDP is very large compared to, say, I don't know, Peru or Bolivia on a, on a per head basis, I would imagine. But it's it's a similar problem that we're expected to be able to deliver, like with France, like I'm sure Peru, Bolivia, Argentina and you know, other continents are available, are expected to um, to be able to deliver like a, a major European developed jurisdiction. And it's just not possible with the state of things as they are. And again, as you say, with some of the issues that that are being faced within the jurisdiction, I I also think it's very interesting what you said, that for a lot of um, less developed nations, VAT, uh, sort of those types of taxes, are the, the main revenue source. Because, of course, if that is the case, the vast majority of these provisions, even if they were able to access them effectively, are of no interest. That there's nothing going back that helps helps the less developed nations with their tax collection, which I hadn't I hadn't fully appreciated that there was that sort of distinction as as, as well uh, as in sort of the major part of the tax base differs. So that that really does seem highly problematic in terms of having a fair system. And as as Graham will know, I don't like the word fair because I think it gets misused a lot. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of equity in a system which says, well, you'll help us collect our taxes, um, but that's going to do nothing for you, really. So, Carlos, can I just ask, in your assessment, so we see when we get um, things coming out of um, the OECD that they always make a point, don't they, of saying, this is going to help the developed countries. It might be the last paragraph in the in, in, in the press release, but it's always there. So things like BEPS, uh, not things like BEPS, but is do you think that's just window dressing or are they building systems that when the developed country becomes more developed, it will be relevant? Absolutely. I totally agree on that. And I, I, I'm i very supportive of that phrase saying all these will benefit developing countries. That That's true. But as you said, it's, it takes time. So once some major uh, issues are resolved in those jurisdictions, they can start implementing all the, all these standards uh, and they will benefit from that. And also being part of the discussion allows those jurisdictions to improve themselves, to uh, 
create some type of capacity building inside the, 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 the tax administration or tax policy department. Uh, going to the OECD is a very quick manner of learning. So discussing issues that are very complex allows many delegates to, to, to be familiar with issues that they have never seen before. So it, it, it's unfair, but at the same time, it is beneficial for those jurisdictions. So they, they will probably create a, a tax unit in order to implement those newly developed standards. If the standard was not there and it was not probably requested to be implemented in that jurisdiction because they are not part of this issue, they will never have uh, that team. Uh, and similarly, some units were created just to comply with the international commitment not even being uh, interested in the outcome, but just to be part of the meeting or to be one of the inclusive framework members have made the obligation to establish a unit to uh, at least follow the discussions, uh, at least to see how to implement those standards. Not necessarily because they, they believe that implementing that standard will be beneficial, just to uh, comply with the expectancy that those jurisdictions will be trying to do their best in order to commit with the minimum standards or any other uh, standards that, that they have uh, the, or they believe they need to meet in order to be part of the discussion. So the whole thing is a learning process. Rather than this provision will help us, being involved in the process of implementing upskills the tax office Everybody understands a bit more about what a permanent establishment is, what a whatever. Like they, 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 they encounter terms that they've never encountered before, and then that helps the whole jurisdiction get better. Yes, yes. At the beginning, it was in a very uh, reduced doses because it was only the international team dealing with tax treaty negotiations. So they were trying to get familiar with with those standards in order to negotiate the tax treaty. Then, if once the treaty was enforced, they need to be aware of how that treaty worked and probably address some, not, not even mutual agreement procedures, but probably uh, any consult on how the tax treaty applies. So they require to be on spot. And then when the, the agenda was expanded in order to include developing countries in the standard setting process, it was the same. They need to learn what the discussion would be about in order to at least follow the discussion. Then if they have learned a little bit, they could intervene during a, a specific meeting, raise a concern. And then uh, it, uh, as time goes by, they are much more familiar. They already know what the discussion is about. They probably have identified a, a concern that could be properly addressed, or they may raise the issue propose an alternative uh, outcome in order to address that concern. Uh, and the, mo the most challenging part is to propose something that could be agreeable by others. So that's the, the last level of the learning process. So if you are in a situation to identify a concern, to propose something that could also work for others, uh, you, you are uh, an equal footing uh, country. But that takes time. And so I've got... So Carlos, can <clears throat> I've got one question very quickly. Uh, do you think that the, uh, the going through that learning process in the international context can assist with domestic tax collections? So does it improve the system as a whole? 
that requires a, an extract for uh, you know many international organizations provide technical assistance and they may provide some capacity building uh, activities as well. Sometimes developing countries may request for that, that type of assistance in order to improve their own systems. Again, the problems most developing countries are facing are in a previous stage of the evolution of the international tax uh, mechanism. So it's not necessarily that uh, discussing BEPS or discussing uh, Pillar one or pillar two will allow those countries to solve the less evolutive type of problems they are facing. They may probably need to get those issues addressed first uh, with those type of uh, assistance. Uh, Inspectors Without Borders uh, may help, or uh, the UN Capacity Building Unit as well, or the World Bank, the IMF. All those big international organizations provide that, that type of technical assistance and capacity building in a more tailored way, trying to address those specific issues. But okay. to me, there is a big disconnection between what is being discussed in the international forum on the one hand and the lack of uh, law enforcement or the proper design of the tax policy in a jurisdiction. So that disconnection has to be probably addressed in a more specific way. And don't expect that discussion in the international forum will try to solve that for you. You, you need to go it directly. Yeah. So can I just drill down to a sort of idea around, sort of get a picture of what capacity type things are in, in some developing countries. So um filing tax returns is it is it all paper based in a lot of these countries still are there online methods is it all online i mean where i live we we sort of have this weird hybrid that seems to lead to nothing but trouble but um the the uh how how quickly adva- are are, they, are developing countries advancing down the road of making the processing of the data which is a big problem for tax authorities easier using technology or are they still stuck in the 1950s uh, i think there are two work things one is to uh, improve tax administration allowing digitalization in the interaction between taxpayers and tax administration and probably this is the the the, the, the fastest way so they are doing that probably they are uh, digitalizing those processes in a very good pace around the world. Of course, some countries are still working in paper with tangible files in order to present tax returns and to process them. But that is probably the first step. Something which is much more challenging is something you said, how to process that information. And nowadays, if you, if you have the information all there in, in, in the cloud and you can access that being the tax administration, I don't see tax administration processing the data they have in a way that may lead to a, a better law enforcement. And 
if you see how many jurisdictions are making tax assessment to the major taxpayers, you will notice that probably they are just receiving the information, but not necessarily uh, perfectly processing that. For instance, those jurisdictions have, that have signed to CRS, International Exchange of Information in an automatic manner for bank, uh, banking accounts information, they are not probably processing that information they are receiving every year. That may allow them to at least challenge the information they have collected uh, through the tax returns process. Even if these both information are digitalized, I don't see someone making the match uh, and leading to an audit. I, I be, don't see. To that. be honest, I don't think that's happening in the developed countries either. No, <laughs> I don't think. No, I mean they're, they're the, not the, joining the, them up independently. They're they're going and getting the CRS information if they already have an investigation. But there's just such a tsunami of information coming in that they just can't. They don't have the data centers. They don't have the people to be able to to join everything mm -hmm. up, right? Yeah, that happens around the world. Uh, small <laughs> capacity jurisdictions uh, are facing the same problem, even if they are developed or developing countries. But at least you need to have a plan how to address that. Uh, and I don't see the plan in most developing countries. You, one has to think um, anywhere that uh, AI is going to play a part with, with information. And I, do, I don't... It's something that I'd be fascinated to find out is how far, say, for example, HMRC are down the process of getting a really good system in place to deal with that. But if they could deal with all of the information that they're getting, and particularly in somewhere like the UK with a lot of activated exchange relationships, it's, um, uh, yeah. Uh, but but as you say, there's if you're in a less developed nation, there is less resource, full stop, simply to be to, to be expended on that. And that's very difficult. And like you say, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Because you have the information, but it sits there. You can't use it. You can't put it together. It doesn't help you collect any tax. And at the same time, it, it imposes an obligation, which is using up your resource. So it is, it, it's, it, again, it, it, it seems to me that in that respect, there's a real sort of um, imbalance, which doesn't help the less developed nations. And I I don't know the answer to this, so um, it's, it's a bit of a mean question, but I, I wonder what could be done to address that imbalance. Because it, if 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 developing if less sorry less developed nations had more resource, um, that would help them, but it would help everybody else as well because they would be better able to implement the international regime. And so it seems to me that it's in everybody's best interests that less developed nations are using their resources to collect their taxes rather than helping everybody else to get theirs yes what could be done that's an interesting question i think we are on the in the right direction we need to probably expand those technical assistance and uh, capacity building activities in order to raise awareness of the need of uh, mobilizing resources towards what is international tax uh, system or domestic tax um, law enforcement. So first of all, it's a political decision. They need, uh, we need a decision to be taken in, in least developed countries to, to create those capacities. Then if they identify that priority, they will find a way to receive any technical assistance or any international program helping them to develop that. 
And then it's a matter of time. Once you have a, a team working on this, they will get familiar with the issues at stake. They will find a way to improve uh, law enforcement, to modify the law in, in order to make it much more useful for, for in order to address their needs. And then afterwards, they will have that capacity in a situation to engage in discussion with others in order to uh, build together a, a, a much better environment. That's the process. So we need to start. Some, some jurisdictions have already uh, uh, traversed that situation. They are already there. You see uh, big countries like, like India, China, uh, Brazil, uh, in some stage, uh, Argentina as well. They are there. They, they have done that process uh, and they are in a situation to, to, to be around the table, trying to influence the discussions and trying to make the outcome to perfectly address their concerns. So we those jurisdictions are there. Others are probably in between, uh, trying to follow the discussion, trying to make their own assessment. But others are not even around the table, or if they are, they are not understanding what the discussion is about. And finally, you have least developed countries that are not even invited to, to, to have the discussion. I mean, it's a really big ask for a developing country, right, to, uh, to, to go from sort of not quite zero, but, uh, but, but, to, but to have an equivalent an effective taxation system. Like you say, it's reliant on lots of other things like law enforcement being up to date. It's taken the developed countries or certainly the Western European countries a thousand years to develop this system. Um, and now we're saying to, I don't know, African countries that got independence in 1960, well, you're measured by the same standards that we are. Uh, that's That can't be, that can't be sensible. Um, but we keep talking, don't we, about this. And But do you think that the, OECD, even though it is the it now has the inclusive framework in the last few years, but do you think that the, the and I'm going to ask you a, a difficult question now, do you think that the UN, given what's happening in recent months, the UN's uh, trying to develop its position around international tax cooperation, do you think that the UN is just innately a more, um, a, a better forum to do this kind of discussion in, or do you do you, a lot of people say, well, you know, the OECD can get things done because it's a small central core and then it goes out to its wider group. Do you think that the OECD has advantages over the UN or do you think that the UN just naturally is is a more just method of doing it? More appropriate, That's maybe. Interesting question. And I don't have a, a real answer or a proper answer for you. I have my own views. Uh, from a very simple uh, analysis, I would say, yes, the UN should be a, a more suitable place because its membership is larger. So there are like around 200 jurisdictions that are members of the United Nations. On the contrary, there are now only 145 jurisdictions at the inclusive framework. If we stay on that, we will say, yes, the UN is much better. But I would like to introduce some layers of complexity in this analysis. Even if there are 200 jurisdictions 
invited to have a discussion. Will necessarily the outcome the outcome will be beneficial for them? Uh, if we take the experience we had in the last years, where where 140 plus jurisdictions were invited to to discuss pillar one and pillar two, it is clear that they couldn't influence the discussion, but not because the OECD didn't allow them, not because of the secretariat was biased. It was just because they were facing some challenges. As I said before, not everyone around the table had the capacity to create a team able to follow the discussion, to come back home, make their own assessment to see whether or not whatever is being drafted could address their concerns, to have a, a clear indication from their politicians that the direction of travel was somehow confirmed or uh, rectified. So if those jurisdictions were not able to have a say in that discussion, what would make it different if we now translate, uh, take that discussion into another forum if we come back to the United Nations and start discussing the same issue again, will we have the, an, a different outcome? Will those jurisdictions will be in a very express mode, will be able to follow the discussion, to make their own assessment, to identify possible outcomes, to make a proposal that could be agreeable by everyone and to get a confirmation from their politicians that that's what they want. Uh, to me, that would be very naive to think that if we now start a discussion somewhere else, the outcome will be much better. And, um, and, and, and sorry, just to yes. pause, in big, it, it, uh, am, I, am I understanding correctly that in big part of that is simply because the least developed jurisdictions are not in a position at the moment to be able to engage in that in a way that's going to be productive and effective so it doesn't matter where you put everybody around the table if they if they can't bring the right team to the table it's not going to make any difference to the outcome not in the shortcoming but in in a long process it will because again it's a, a learning process so probably if we start now in 10 years probably not all the jurisdiction but many of them will be in a position to, to to be in an equal footing, but not in the shortcoming. But that could happen also at the inclusive framework somewhere else. For those jurisdictions participating and getting familiar and trying to learn something, they will be in a position probably in 10 years to engage in a more active role, but not now. That's independent on where the discussion is taking place. But so can, can I ask? Sorry, Graham. Um, we are both absolutely fascinated by everything you're saying and we can't decide who gets to ask the next question. Um, can I ask a, a, a sort of crystal ball gazing question, a predict the future question? Ten years from now, as you say, a, a lot of jurisdictions will have sort of um, evolved their processes so that they, they are in a position to have a more be able to play a broader role. Where do you think they will be doing that? Do you think that will be in the OECD or in the UN or something else? I don't know where that will happen, but <laughs> at any place it will happen, it will be beneficial for everyone. 
not only for those jurisdictions, but also for the entire community, because we will be trying to address some concerns that probably now we are not aware of the existence of that concern. And that's what's happening around the table. Uh, some jurisdictions at the last minute say, no, I cannot join the agreement, uh, but you still don't know why. So if they have, uh, before that, identified the concern and make a proposal, we all together will would be in a situation that could try to address that concern. So uh, that's because at least in a world that decisions are taken by consensus, we need to have everyone happy. So, and that's the reason why outcomes around pillar one and pillar two are very complex. Because at the time a concern was identified by jurisdiction, the solution to address that concern created a new layer of complexity. Uh, otherwise, the, 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 the solution would be much more simpler because very few jurisdictions with very similar situation will have developed something in order to address their main uh, issue. But at the time we invite others, we need to accommodate their views. And, and that's why the, 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 the outcomes uh, has gained in, in complexity. So it could happen at the United Nations. It could be done at the OECD. It doesn't matter. Also, as long as we have everyone on board, and as long as those jurisdictions are in a position to make a proper assessment and actively engage in the discussion, outcomes should not be different. However, if decision take the, the decision process is different in another forum, let's say let's go for simple majority, as long as you have 50% plus supporting something, uh, you will have an, a solution. Will that solution will be globally implemented? Will that solution bind all, all jurisdictions, even those uh, less than 50% and that were not uh, supporting that? Uh, that's something for us to, 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 to start thinking about because if they, the, the current discussion at the United Nations and today is the day they are deciding uh, on, on a proposal that was being requested by the African group, if a new body is created following a, an international agreement and that body is mandated to work on international tax cooperation, we need to know how that body will make decisions. Will that body work under a consensus basis? The outcome won't be different as the one we already have at the OECD. Even if we invite 200 jurisdictions, no one was prevented from working or showing the inclusive framework. It was open to every single jurisdiction that wanted to, to work on this. So it's not that the inclusive framework has not been inclusive. It's been open to everyone since the beginning. So if we work under consensus, I don't see a, a much different outcome. If we work uh, with a different type of decision-making process, I'm a little bit concerned that the outcome wouldn't be globally implemented or wouldn't be satisfactory to everyone. I mean, that may very well be true about specific proposals. If you take the same proposal that went in front of the, the, the inclusive framework and you put it in front of, the, of a UN body, would you get the same result? But surely if the UN body has a broader base for the agenda-setting jurisdictions, instead of just being the 36 members of the OECD, it's the 
It is 36, isn't it? It is 36, yeah. Um, the 36 members of the OECD, it, then it's a representative of the of the General Assembly and 60% of those jurisdictions in that agenda-setting group are developing countries. Then you won't get you might not get a different outcome for the same approval for the same proposal, but you'll get different proposals. Is do you think that's fair? That's the expectancy. Uh, those proposing to have a new uh, intergovernmental body under the umbrella of the United Nations have complained about the issue that the topics under discussion were not raised by the vast majority of developing countries. Uh, as this comes, uh, uh, that, that brings us to, to what we were discussing before. Uh, the agenda was uh, set up by OECD countries, G7, G20 countries. And again, even if the agenda is open for everyone, it is still open now. Anyone can raise any issue at the inclusive framework. Anyone can present a topic to be discussed. So I, I wouldn't see a difference. Uh, one minor uh, layer of analysis would be what is the secretariat assisting the forum? Uh, one of the critis criticisms uh, around inclusive framework is that the secretariat is also coming from OECD members. I, I, I don't see that as a major problem. Uh, to me, everyone can join the secretariat as long as that person has the expertise required to, 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 to the position that person is expected to be appointed. So I, I don't believe that uh, that would bias the outcome. Of course, the secretariat has a very relevant role in designing policy because normally uh, they try to read the interests of the room, comes back uh, to the office, prepare a draft, and then for the following meeting, we have a draft trying to uh, reflect the discussions we had before. And in drafting that proposal, uh, there could be some type of influence. Of course, I, I don't deny that, but that could happen everywhere. So I, I don't believe that changing their international organization will make a real difference. Uh, it all depends on, on, on the behavior of those developing countries trying to engage more in the international discussion. So, so you think that if they push themselves forward um, and, and take a leading role, even in the inclusive framework, that that can then become um, actually properly inclusive and, and as effective as a UN body. But the problem is that in the past, they haven't quite seized the initiative like they're now able to. And partly because of a lack of expertise and sort of ability or availability of people to put forward to do that. Yeah, that, that's my that's what I believe. Yes. So it, it doesn't matter where we are discussing. What I don't like is to work disconnected or uncoordinatedly in different bodies because developing countries are suffering from lack of capacity. If now they need to duplicate because they need to attend meetings at the United Nations and to attend meetings at the OECD with different agendas, they need to at least 
expand the team and to make it bigger enough in order to address both discussions. And that's something that will probably be very inefficient because mm-hmm. not all those jurisdictions have the resources to mobilize in that way. And just to speak up for the OECD, I mean, I don't do it very often, but just to speak up for the OECD, um, the inclusive framework does include all of the overseas territories and the non-self-governing territories, which would not be included in a UN body. So it's, in some sense, broader in its base because it doesn't rely on you being a member state of the UN to be in the room. Or even an independent state. Or even an independent state, yeah. True. Uh, the inclusive framework is open to every single jurisdiction, even if it, even if it is not a member of the United Nations. Of course. Yeah. Which is uh, which, which, from where I'm sitting, is important. <laughs> yes. So um, Graham and I both work in. Uh, I'm based in the UK, but Graham and I both work in jurisdictions which w- would not have a seat at the table at the UN, but are involved in the inclusive framework. And I think it, it does make a difference. And I think it's like it's it's not to be downplayed how important it was for those small jurisdictions to be acknowledged by the inclusive framework. It was big news in Gibraltar when we entered the inclusive framework. It was on the it was on the front page of the local paper that you know we were on the international stage. It matters to small countries. Um, but there you go. That's my rah rah bit over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it doesn't also. I think that that degree of inclusivity, it's it's jurisdictions like Gibraltar and like Jersey that actually, to a certain extent, you need to have on board because those are some of the jurisdictions that have regimes that cause larger jurisdictions difficulties um, for whatever reason. And that's a very complicated topic uh, that, that is certainly for another day. So actually including them it is a way to, I can only think of a very crude um metaphor so i'm not going to use it but bringing them inside the process obviously helps enormously with getting things done by those jurisdictions and in them rather than it's the carrot rather than the stick isn't it they go i found a better analogy yeah 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 you don't want to be threatening people you want them to cooperate i think that's what you're trying to say absolutely exactly. uh, that, that's the point we need to cooperate among all jurisdictions in order to have a, a better world so we need to embark everyone. And again, uh, shifting the discussion into another forum wouldn't by itself be, lead to a different outcome. It, it, it all depends on jurisdictions and how active they are in the discussion. Yeah. So even if it's in the UN, if, if only the same 36 countries are interested, you'll get exactly the same outcome. That's where we are. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Uh, unless we change the type of decision-making process. If we shift from consensus to simple majority, I'm afraid that one big country with a lot of resources, with a very uh, well-staffed international tax team will propose something and expect others to follow them, trusting that what they have developed is beneficial to countries that perceive themselves being similar to that big country, which is not necessarily the, the we, we, we already have that, sort of have that, don't we, with uh, <laughs> one big jurisdiction that just tends to troll off on its own and do things slightly differently. Um, 
Really, Graham? Uh, I, that, I can't uh, think of a jurisdiction like that. That, that. That's interesting. That's interesting because we will be changing the big country and taking the lead and having smaller jurisdictions following that one, believing that if it is beneficial to that big country, it will also be beneficial to others. So that's probably why we are where we are. Yeah. Because we were not able to think for, from our own perspective what is really what we want. That problem's only get, that potential problem is only going to get worse as the EU coalesces more into a single unit that has its own set of rules. And yes, it wants to cooperate, but it always goes a little bit further. It always takes a slightly different stance. I think that what the, the problem you're highlighting is only going to get um, worse. As the blocks solidify, and also the other problem that I can see with a with a bare majority is that you don't get buy-in, do you? As you say, I think as you said earlier, you, if you say you've got forty-nine percent who didn't want it, they're not going to enforce it properly. They're not going to go out of their way to deal with it. Um, and if you need an example of that, just look at the um, UK's referendum on the EU, where I we think, have a completely yeah. divided country. Brexit, Brexit is is was what sprang to my mind. Yeah, for, for 52-48 is not a, not a convincing result for anybody and doesn't please anyone. And you, know, you can't base a complete root and branch reform of the of an international system that is made up of individual treaties that have been negotiated uh, on a bipartisan basis to then sweep it all away with some overarching framework that's supported by 51% of the countries that might not even represent a majority of the population of the world. I mean, because state size is not linked to number of votes in the UN, is it? Yes, for, we have an example with that. At the United Nations Committee of Experts on International Matters, we, we are developing a, a model uh, to, to allow countries to follow at the time of concluding their own uh, tax treaties. And that model is developed by simple majority among the 25 members. So since the composition of the United Tax Committee is 13 coming from developing countries and 12 from developed countries, many changes in the past have been agreed by majority. So and, and you, we have also this type of 52 versus 48. And the question is, how likely are countries being represented by the minority to implement the standard that was recently created? So we have seen that with many provisions in the United Nations tax model, uh, where all those standards are there, they are part of the model, but it's very hard to have a, a real conclusion of a tax treaty following that model. So, and I'm afraid we will see that much more in the in the future if we are again taking decisions by simple majority and just allowing minority views to be reflected in a less visible way, like in a commentary in the model. So that's something I, I'm afraid of. If if we uh, expand this type of situation to any other international tax cooperation beyond tax treaties we will see the same. The standard that the new forum will create will not necessarily be representing the interests 
of a group of countries and that group of countries will never implement it or if they are forced to do it, uh, that will create a lot of concerns. I mean, even the EU doesn't have even qualified majority voting over matters like this, does it? It has to have unanimity for direct direct taxation changes. So yes, there's a lot I, less I'm EU afraid. members. I, 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 I think that's the way it has to work, by consensus, uh, unanimous views. But I'm afraid that those uh, supporting this initiative believe that they can take decisions by majority. So if they are more, they are more likely to have their views being represented in the newly developed standard. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that would happen. So I think that 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 has been an absolutely fascinating look into how these things work. And I think what I've absolutely loved about this is that over the last nearly an hour, you have almost completely changed the way I think about how international tax is developed. Um, I've got, I think I've got some quite sort of like firm ideas and you've, you've talked about things in a way that I, I, it just never occurred to me to think about it. And that has been um, absolutely fascinating. Uh, but so before we finish, I just want to ask you one more question, which is our, our standard question, which is, what what is essential to having an a, a functioning um, tax international tax system that works for everyone? Um, and say uh, if if you need a time scale over the next ten years, what's the what's the essential thing for the next ten years that we need to be focused on? Uh, we need to to me address uh, nexus in time of allocating taxing rights. Uh, what we are doing under pillar one of the project of the inclusive framework uh, is to, to, to see how to create a nexus between jurisdictions and multinational companies uh, deriving income from those jurisdictions in the absence of physical presence. That's the current nexus. So beyond what Amount A is trying to do, I think we need to, to think further what is the next way of taxing uh, multinationals. Uh, in my views, we cannot rely anymore on permanent establishment concepts or physical presence. We need to find a way to, to, to make a link between market jurisdictions and multinationals uh, conducting business therein, uh, and we need to allocate somehow uh, income to those jurisdictions. That's very challenging, and uh, that's probably simplify and expand the, the scope of the application of amount aid, that will be very relevant for everyone. But for that, we need, again, to, to improve capacities among jurisdictions, uh, to prepare them to develop their own teams to have a, a discussion uh, for in an equal footing. Uh, and that will probably take 10 years or more. So that's what I see in, in 10 years. In the shortcoming, I think we need to expand uh, capacity building activities in order to allow jurisdictions to uh, design a, a much more efficient tax system in a domestic way, uh, and then to allow them to improve those domestic tax systems, uh, trying to pick up the standards we have developed in, in so far. So some of the BEPS issues are, are relevant. 
to allow them to exchange information and to process information they receive in order to enforce the law. Uh, and of course, uh, trying to see what are the major challenges for those jurisdictions in order to help them to, to address them. That's what we need to, de- to do in the next 10 years. Uh, and again, it doesn't matter which is the forum we are taking that uh, work. Uh, what we need is to work together and uh, to listen to everyone, uh, not to try to, to impose any views at the time of developing a standard because the standard wouldn't uh, be useful if it is not fully implemented by everyone. Yeah. Okay, so the big news here is that you think that Nexus is the most important thing, and that's great because I agree with you, and Harriet has told me <laughs> repeatedly that it's impossible to do. So that's great. Um, I think it's, it's the point that I you highlight. I didn't say impossible. Almost impossible. I'm sure you said almost impossible. Um, very difficult, which for a barrister means impossible. Um, I, I, I think it's really important what you've highlighted, what you put your finger on there, that there's sort of, there is an artificiality to the scheme as it was that looks at permanent establishment as a as a substitute for source, um, which allows a lot of the planning that people do, the BEPs that people do, because there is a disconnect between reality and the legality of the position. I think that's um, that's very very true. What what you highlighted there. Um, I agree that the permanent establishment concept was developed 150 years ago, ago in a world where it was not likely to conduct business in the absence of foods on the ground. Nowadays, with the new technologies, you can do that without uh, any physical presence at all. So we need to revisit that uh, concept. Uh, and physical presence is and a, a proxy for Nexus. It's not the Nexus itself. Yeah. So we need to identify a new proxy that will lead to some type of Nexus allowing jurisdictions to tax the fair portion of, of income. I'm not saying everyone has to go to the market or everything has to be taxed there. I mean, somehow we need to uh, find a new equilibrium, a new balance among jurisdictions that will help for another 150 years. Otherwise, we will be just trying to introduce uh, temporary solutions, uh, not being able to fix the whole the whole problem. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. We need it to be a uh, a robust solution rather than a series of sticking plasters that will the system will get more and more complex and it will eventually collapse, like an intellectual system does under the weight of its own internal contradictions um, yes. uh, and nowadays we, we we trust on transfer pricing but transfer pricing was developed or in order to allocate uh, income to that physical unit so depending on risk uh, on functions and assets but somehow we need to go beyond that and try to allocate some type of profits in a, in a different way or through a new mechanism, not necessarily relying on, on that physical unit. Let's not talk about transfer pricing. There's a whole, <laughs> a whole five-hour <laughs> series on, that we can discuss. And, and the rest. And yeah. the rest. <laughs> Carlos, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. We are blown away by your generosity with your time. And as I say, this has been completely eye-opening for me because you have 
given me a whole different perspective on how things work. And um, so thank you very much. Thank you very much, Carlos. Uh, and uh, it's it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, at any time, I will be uh, there with you again. So thank you again and have a nice week.